If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Boss Save the People. In this episode, it's me, DRL Miles, and Kai talking about all the news you don't know from the past week, the underreported news about justice and race and equity that should have been national headlines that might not have been or take on what was. We talk about the world's first known drag queen. We talk about entrepreneurship, Black entrepreneurship in D.C. And we talk about the alarming trend of missing kids in Cleveland. We also had a much-needed conversation about male suicide within the Black community. And if you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, speak to someone and search for free wellness resources within your community. Remember, you are not alone. Here we go. Family, we missed you. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Milesy Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Pharaoh Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is DeRay at DRY on Twitter. So, deep sigh as we get into this one. But given, I don't want to call anybody out, but given what some Black media outlets are saying about this incident, we thought it was only right, given our wise and neutral perspective to talk about this Gamora Lee Simmons, Russell Simmons situation. I am still completely confused why Russell Simmons hasn't been taken down fully yet. See what I mean by neutral perspective? So I was very confused to see that this got so much buzz around. Um, It got so much buzz last week. Kimora and Russell's daughters both saying that he's being abusive and he needs he needs basically he needs support and he needs he, he may ha, may have some mental health issues. So it kind of blew up for a day. Now it has completely gone away this week, basically. Um, but you know it's been an interesting ride with Russell Simmons, given that he was accused of rape and sexual assault over the course of I don't know a decade or so. Um, and nothing really came of that. There was a, a documentary on it. There was some some light fanfare around the documentary, but definitely nothing that, that could change or impact his life ensued after that. So 
I don't know, curious about what you all saw, particularly those of us who really know what's going on on the internet. Um, but yeah, I just, I think it's just really bizarre to me, this whole situation. Yeah, I think the weirdest part is that Russell Simmons, you know, does have that documentary out <laughs> about about him. Um, and that, you know, it was Kimora and his daughters saying everything that they had to say about him was like, I guess like kind of shocking for for me and that the fact that they went public but the content of it didn't misalign because I did watch the um the documentary with Drew Dixon and um and the other and the other um victims of of Russell Simmons and you know hot, I mean hot off the press's take ever it's just so interesting to remember Kamora defending Russell, you know? And I do think that those things, that has to do with, you know, even her being groomed and meeting him at 16. But I, uh, I, I can't help but think that, oh, wow, this could be easier or this could have went easier if we believed victims the first time. If we took what Black women specifically in these male and black ran industry seriously we wouldn't be so surprised and maybe we wouldn't have to kind of feel like almost a little bit feel like we're starting over if that makes sense this 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 feminist we like oh now we now we have enough and now to start over kind of reminds me of r kelly where like something new needed to happen each time for us to start over because the first time was enough the second time enough and the third time was enough um, I'm feeling a little bit that way about Russell, where I'm like, this was a few years ago where this came out and Oprah said something and we and we were around and there was a lot of, you know, respectable black women who said it and now and 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 now we're here again trying to say this person's not safe for um the community. So yeah. Yeah, Miles, I like you, I think um one of the surprising things was how she was like, I'm tired of defending him. And he is all of these things that people say. And, and I felt a little um, like, I mean, first of all, I feel terrible for Kimura and for Aoki and all of them. And, you know, the thing, the way he talks to them and the way he talks about them, I feel terrible for all of that. But I also felt some kind of way about like, you know, now that you are in trouble or now that you are catching heat from this dude, now you're like, I'm tired of defending him. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of other. What about all of those other women who were, who were tired of being abused and you were complicit in the cover up and the after abuse and whatnot? And now it's coming your way. And so we should all feel sorry for you when you didn't feel sorry for them. Um, is Petty Kaya talk, and she lives here too, and so I just want to keep it real. <laughs> um, I, I also, I really, I mean, watching that young lady, watching Aoki, like really just have a uh, like a breakdown on on social media. Like, I'm so worried about the youngs and and their mental health and. It just was heartbreaking to watch this young lady 
beg her father to stop talking to her like this and and feel like she needs to put her life on display on social media. It was so disturbing to me. Um, in my old lady gum, I, I was like, come on, y'all. Where's the therapist? Where's the interventionist? Where are the, where are the people who, where's the team? Everybody's got a team. Where's your team? Where's your team making sure that this stuff is not happening on, on the socials? Because that is an added dimension that makes an already horrible situation even worse. It was deeply disturbing to me. I think I was... Um... So I agree with you, Kaya. I was saddened and I was appreciative of Kamora saying, you know, I'm I'm not going to defend him. And it it totally in one moment took away her, what some people were like, well, maybe she didn't know. She wasn't there, right? She wasn't in the rooms when Russell did it. And it's like, no, no, no. She, she, it was clear she knew. It was clear that she was not like a random person who didn't witness this side of him. She saw the only good side and he was bad outside. It's like, no, no, no. She actually saw it. And, and that was sad. And it was, it reminded me of the complicity of a victims even in perpetuating abuse, right? Like that whole moment. The other thing is that this seemed pretty cut and dry to me. Like it was like, okay, Russell is a bad actor. The kids are dealing with it in a, in a way that they should not even have to deal with anything. Kamora doesn't know what to do, which is why she's going to social media. Cause this is, it felt very last resorty. And then I see the Breakfast Club and their defense of him is so stunning to me that I'm even, I'm like, of all the things to take away from that, the idea that you don't criticize him because this is your father, because this is your family, because if you really loved your parent, be, you wouldn't do it this way because he's famous and you're trying to embarrass him. They actually said that. Those are like, that's not even a poor paraphrase. That is a more generous repeating of what they said than they deserve. And I just want to say out loud that that is how abuse cements itself in families. That is how kids and partners get abused for decades because people are like, you know, we'll deal with it inside the house. We will, and kids come out traumatized whole communities are affected by that behavior. The idea that Russell Simmons can do whatever he wants and those women can't say anything about it to anybody because that's their dad is such a wild thing to say out loud, especially because he's not accused of not giving you lunch money. He's not accused of, you know, he won't buy you the Ferrari. He bought you a Saturn, right? This is rape. This is abuse. This is financial abuse. I mean, these are legitimate concerns. And for the Breakfast Club with such a big platform in Black communities to legitimize abuse and wrap it up in the idea of love was just scary, actually. I wasn't even, I wasn't even sad about it. I was scared for the families that will consume that and, and abuse will continue. Even worse is like, I think I think about people who, oh, hopefully there are not many, people who are looking for the Breakfast Club as kind of like guiding lights and compasses morally, intellectually, that 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 is scary for, which is, which is, you know, that's scary. But I think the worst thing are people who wear just cements what they always already think. And I think, and they already feel that way about uh, those kind of conflicts and abuse. And it just kind of cements their reality. And I think that in media, you have such a good opportunity to, to disrupt 
maybe uh, share, share thought um, by dissenting against it and using these moments to, you know, break the hegemonic way of thinking that, that, that we might have adopted of thinking. And they just, they just gave up that opportunity. <laughs> really. I don't know why I was so obsessed, but I actually was following all the submarine news. And mostly because, you know, I live in a household with a journalist who nonstop covers immigration, is always at the border. We're always talking about how unsupported asylum seekers and other folks who are coming to this country and, and going to other countries to find better lives for themselves are completely unsupported. So to watch the intensity to which this thing was covered, where rich people who are doing an adventure tour of the Titanic, side note, rich people, if you need to know what to do with your money, please call me and ask me because I will help you so that you don't <laughs> become, become casualties in a submarine explosion. Um, but I thought that was it, was, it was just wild to know that this industry exists, number one. Um, that there was so much interest around it. Um, and then really it just was kind of like the media kind of taking us along this journey when all along most of the people that are like experts in the field knew the thing exploded that day. So what what did y'all, what, were y'all following? What do you think? What has happened? Well, I am grateful for the f- fact that I am now um an aquamarine biologist in less than a week because of all the things that I consumed <laughs> and it's official. So, you know, yes. the silver lining of the, <laughs> of the, of the, of the sea cloud is that <laughs> I know so much. You got a whole new career option. I have a whole new Bio career option. Like, I, know, I know about like, deep pressure and I'm saying <laughs> I'm counting in meters and not just this big and this big. I'm now just doing the aquamarine biologist life thing and I'm wearing lots more shades of blue. I think the um the 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 thing that was the most interesting to me about it, of course, like the critique around the, you know, America doing something for for rich people, not for, you know, vulnerable people. Like, yeah, absolutely true. But kind of like that is on rhythm for, 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 for America, unfortunately. I think that the thing that is most interesting to me is the, the, the poetry in it, I guess. Like just, the idea that it was they were going to see like the like the the whole idea around Titanic that captured any interest of mine was the fact that it was a class issue and that certain people didn't get to live and certain people um, didn't get to survive simply because of class. And here is this other thing that like is is kind of perpetuating this like class issue where um, even now I've I, I don't I don't have the the institution correct, but I know now like some kind of like esteemed institution associated with the Titanic is gonna like help or they're gonna be in the in the in the memorial with them now. So even like in this like embarrassing, silly death, they're still kind of being being made like serious um by where they're being uh buried and honored. And I think that I think, I don't know. I think that's the, the the class story of if you have enough money, you it will always be Somebody will always make a statue. <laughs> somebody, somebody will always make it seem like what you did was uh, n- not so silly or 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 great. And I just can only think about p- 
people, you know, 150 years from now looking at that same memorial, like, you know, memorial and be like, well, who are these people from 2023? And figuring out why they're included and it has nothing to do with the Titanic. It just has to do with, you know, having too much money and shoddy um, technology. But now that I'm on the scene, the technology will be improving and it will be getting way cuter. Well, they're and they're already hiring for the man that was controlling the submarine that perished. So, if yeah, you're looking well, for a role, they're already they're already hiring. And I have three um, PlayStation controllers, which <laughs> <laughs> I also uh, like. Uh, sorry, I was just saying, <laughs> so I somebody talk somebody somebody talk about how like nobody took this seriously who was black. I've never seen anything like it. Well, uh, I first surprised. of all, my aunt, I have an auntie who, no, one of my aunties took it seriously, but okay. then, but she spiraled on, and in our family group chat, do you know how many Black people were on the Titanic? So then she was started to research the Black people on the Titanic. I was like, wild, this is helpful. I don't know how we got here. <laughs> I mean, I could not think of, I mean, maybe I could, but that is it, like, it just struck me as a horrific way to die, right? Five of us or whatever in a little metal room with a toilet in the corner evokes jail to me a little bit. And we're deep, deep under the sea and we explode like horrific, horrific. And then to read the stories about the people who didn't really want to go and all that we knew about how shoddy the equipment was and how many risks people were taking like it it is it just it like none of it had to happen and so it adds insult to the people's death that like this was totally preventable it didn't have to go down this way and i do think like i and you know people are like oh don't make fun of you know people dying and all of that kind of thing and you know with reverence and respect for the people who died I also think it is absolutely unreasonable to not point out the sheer, I don't even know, hubris, the, the, the wealth, something like whatever, all of the things that made this happen at the same time as, you know, we're watching real people who really need to change their life circumstances perish and, and how we treat that in the media is completely different. Like this whole thing, I, I was not obsessed with it. I was not following it. Um, I thought it was I, like, I don't know. I just felt like it was a misplacement of my valuable time and energy. I was glad, you know, when they were saying, oh, they have 40 more hours or 48 more hours. And then we found out that they had died days ago. I was like, great. I'm glad that we are no longer on death watch. Like the not whole the thing is super sound. weird to me. Sorry. <laughs> not the slapping sound. Kaya, Kaya is an educator through and through, just in case you didn't know. Uh, yeah. Mm. yeah, Kaya, I, I'm, I'm with you. You know, if not for Black Twitter, I don't think I would have known a single thing about this because Lord knows the memes, the everything about it. Twitter was on 10,000. The meme of like, if you survived, how would you get out of the submarine? Top tier. It was, I mean, the content was really Iconic Twitter back. Oh, it was like old Twitter back. I do think it's, it was also a reminder of like what money does that like, because they were just so wealthy, not enough people ask questions. 
not enough people forced order or expectations like that would have saved them. And this is like what happens in the political space is that, you know, one of those states, right, just got rid of the regulations that some set of workers had to take breaks every 10 minutes. I mean, 10 minutes every hour. It's like the quest to do whatever they want, normally some sort of like commercial enterprise, but this one was just purely pleasure. Uh, yeah, people just let them do it. And to the detriment, to their detriment, and frankly, to ours, right? Like, we, what, why were we all paying attention to that? That was ridiculous. I will say the graphics that emerged, too brilliant. I didn't know how deep 14,000 feet was until this happened. It's like, why would you even, what, there is, you would have to send me to 15 seminars to show me every aspect of the, of the submarine. It's going to take me that deep. When I saw that image of how deep they were going, and then it's like, to what? Yeah, that is so far down. And then to just drive by underwater, you like, what you see it? It's a wreck. You know, like we've, there's a museum with stuff already. You don't need to go down to the, but again, there is something about wealth, especially white wealth, that is like, you can do whatever you want. And the voyeurism, this was like a beautiful example of the voyeurism of whiteness that like, they just had to see it. They had to see the death and destruction. They just needed to witness it themselves because the museum and the movies and stuff was not enough and people let them do it and here they are. The rebranding of them as victims is wild. They chose that route and they chose a ending that was tragic. That is just true. There is, I don't know anybody who would get in a vessel that tight with that loose of whatever and they knew they were going... If you told me we riding this to the grocery store and then we magically go undersea, you know, you got me. These people, that's not what happened. They knew where they were going, except for the little boy. The little boy, the son, he is the victim here. But the idea that they get included in the memorial and all that stuff, they chose this. This is That is sort of wild, especially when the migrants trying to flee places um, and nobody's helping them. And like it was like a whole set of countries sent out the Coast Guards and stuff to try and find these people. For what? They chose this. So that was sort of wild to me. I think the last thing I'll say on it is just the, the legal perspective. <laughs> First of all, these folks, unless they, unless it is proved that it was like extreme negligence, there's no lawsuit against the submarine, the sub company. And the other thing that ends up happening is that all, all of the, the U.S. assets that were sent to find these people that is paid by, by taxpayer dollars. So that is just the way that it's set up, that if there's a rescue mission, no matter if people put their own selves in peril, the U.S. government puts the bill on that. So I think the other part about this is like the complete unaccountability all around that this company is not, you know, they're, they're like getting off scot-free. And the, and the last, last, last thing I'll say about it is what I do love about Black, capitalists and rich people is I do think that there's a little bit of like a bougie thing that gets baked into us about how we want to see things aesthetically. And I think that in times like now where we're, where we're going with technology, it can really be like a superpower because just off of pure aesthetics, 
They, it just looks crazy in there. They didn't try to make it look like, you know, a private jet with the all beige. I would have went in there and be like, do you know I am a black billionaire? Do you know that Madam C.J. Walker Miles? flew so I can fly private? She flew so I can fly private. You think I'm, I'm about to sink in this? It's not even gold. I'm not doing none of that. <laughs> So <laughs> it did look very much like a inside of a can of peas. Miss like, Frizzle would have even asked y'all to go on there. Miss Frizzle would have been like, no, this is too jank for us. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go anywhere. More Podtake the People's coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. 
And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team, East or West, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. This week is um, combines our respect for and celebration of pride with some unknown DC Black history. I'm very excited to share with you um, the story of William Dorsey Swan. So there is a street in DC called Swan Street, S W A N N, and it's in Dupont Circle, which is a very Tony neighborhood of DC. It's also a very Um, it's the neighborhood where the gay pride parade is held. There are lots of gay bars and it's sort of the center of, um, some gay life in Washington. (laughs) Um, and, um, Swan street is this idyllic little block with lovely homes and whatnot. And it has, it's thought to be named after, um, the former mayor of Baltimore and former governor of Maryland, Thomas Swan, but thanks to a recently passed um, bill by the D.C. City Council, they are renaming Swan Street or dedicating Swan Street um, after the, in the memory of William Dorsey Swan. William Dorsey Swan was a formerly enslaved D.C. resident, and he was the world's first known drag queen. How about them apples? Um, it turns out that William Dorsey Swan was born into slavery in Hancock, Maryland, and he later moved to D.C. after emancipation, where he actually conducted what are known as the first drag balls. Um, he were, and, and I don't, we knew about drag balls in the 20s and 30s in Harlem, but this is like the 1880s. And um, heretofore, it seems people didn't even realize that um, these kinds of balls were happening. Um, he hosted balls in secret. And he had men who would come together and dress and dance. They competed in dances like the cakewalk, which was a dance that the enslaved people performed pre-Civil War, which mimicked the plantation owners and actually um, resembles voguing, uh, according to the researchers. And while there are no, you know, videotapes or recordings or anything, Um, we know about these things because the police would raid the balls all the time. And the only way that we know about these things is because there were police reports and, um, and Dorsey Swan would get dragged into the police station and they'd pull off his dress and that kind of thing. And there are newspaper accounts of that. And so I just thought that this was really interesting because who knew that the first 
officially recognized drag queen was um, an African-American man, a former enslaved man. The term drag, the balls were called drags, and the queen was the person who hosted the ball. And that's where the term drag queen came from. Um, But these drags that he hosted were um, legendary. And I thought it was really interesting. I think, um, you know, we talk about representation. We talk about seeing ourselves in history and how important that is, especially for our young people. And this, for me, was a totally new historical story that we didn't know. And um, I'm excited about it. And I'm proud of the D.C. City Council for unanimously passing a bill to recognize um, William Dorsey Swan. That is so beautiful. Uh, I feel I feel we are family playing in my heart right now. I love stories like this. No, it's super beautiful. I've been thinking about. Um, I mean, I don't I I don't know in what ways I I want to express it, but I've been thinking about how just in recent years but just since drag has been created how this kind of like gender conversation has like also happened and and as like I feel like the transgender conversation has been able to happen more the more that I'm like seeing a shift happen in like the in the drag community even the one that I grew up in or the one that I've like grew up viewing and just seeing how uh, uh gender expression uh uh trans aesthetics um, all these other things that kind of were just only done by people who were in, who were moon people, <laughs> who are just people who were out at night, how those things are just becoming uh, just more proliferated and more common and seen more commonly in the, out in the sun. And um, anytime I hear a story like this, the reason why I, I, I bring that up is because anytime I hear a story like this, I can't help but wonder like what would be the identities if given the choice you know um if if having if 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 given the choice what would be the identity identities of people are we um i i mean i shouldn't say misgendering because it's not like done derogatory but like what what do what the people that we know as he hims and 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 she hers would they if they had the 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 ability what 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 would they go by you know um it reminds me of me even seeing Isaac Mizrahi <laughs> um, earlier um, this week and how Isaac Mizrahi said, like, if he had the um, opportunity back in his childhood, that he think he would probably arrive at a totally different gender identity and totally different um, ways of, of thinking about gender. And, yeah, I, I guess I'm taking a little bit of a stretch with this news, but that's what I really think about when, when I hear about Black people doing queer things in, in history is, wow, if we had the language or if we had the time and the ability to sit down and think about it, what will we come to? Like, what what will we arrive at? And how would that affect how odd queerness seems today if we had the availability of that language, you know? And it, how much it would have seemed like it was a trend wave. But thank you for bringing this news, Auntie Kaya. I feel held. <laughs> Miles, I think my my line of thinking was very similar to yours in terms of I just like imagine what it would be if even black people were supportive of queer folks throughout history. I mean, we could have had two hundred years 
of these conversations you're talking about, but I think Black conservatism, Black religion, I just think all of those politics have directed even how the Black community is talking about gender identity and sexuality and all those things. And so, I don't know, that's where I just go. I mean, I just imagine what the world would be, what our experience would be, what our interactions would be with some of our family members if there was a language and a an established language and established creativity and imagination around identity. That's what, I don't know, that's where it took me. But thank you, Kai. Kai, this was great. I, I obviously hadn't heard of um, Swan. And it makes me think of, I remember I was, I was doing something with the Afro newspaper archives and they have pictures of drag balls in the 20s. And I just had never even imagined balls that far. To me, balls are like 60, 70. That's like when they, that is the beginning to me. So seeing these like people in drag when like the makeup is less advanced, the cl- like every, I just, I don't know. I just feel like it emerged 70, 60s. And to see in the 20s and 30s, I was like, wow, I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. It's like, it was one of those, like, we need to do better mainstreaming of this history so people can remember how long people, especially when it was even riskier than it is today, have been living full lives. And um, it just really, I was like, well, I wish I could talk to any of the people who were in drag in the 20s. I'm like, what? I love it. Especially in places like Baltimore and D.C. And and DR, to your point, in a different way, it's like, what is also true is that Black people have loved on queer people, even in private, in, in, in moments where it was unsafe and publicly unacceptable, um, I think about my aunt had a gay friend. Um, oh my God, Mr. Tony. I think that was, it was his, ah. he was always, we were so young, but he was like, he was definitely gay. And I remember um, it was on Sheena's best friend. And it was like, you know, like nobody talked about him being gay. And so it was just like uh, the family didn't treat him any different, but it was, he was definitely gay in a moment where like being gay was not cool. But it was like, I, I also grew up with gay not being publicly accepted, but also seeing Black people love on other Black gay people in a way that I I worry does not get shown either, right? Um, So that's what this made me think of. So Kaya, thanks for bringing it here. Yeah, Kaya just mentioned that this was was in the 1880s these parties were happening. The 1920s party that popped though, Madam C.J. Walker's daughter, through those parties. Those salons are legendary. So that's what we need to go back to. 1800 is so wild. I mean, I love it. <laughs> it's so dope because I'm obsessed with the Gilded Age. If just obse- obsessed with the show, like obsessed with the era, New York Gilded Age and stuff like that. So it's it's or it's or I say that to say it's already. Um, it was an ostentatious time for all, <laughs> for everybody. So, like, I can only imagine adding queerness and drag performance and bending genders to to an already, you know, new moneyed art art nouveau era of time. Um, yeah, that's super fascinating. Um. So today I'm gonna be the bummer. I'm gonna be the, the the depression pill that I usually wait for the other three of of the co-hosts to be. 
but I figure everybody needs to have their day. So I ran across this um, article. It is entitled The Suicide Method Never Discussed in the Black Community Regarding Black Men. It's by Patrice N. Douglas. So to to, to know to, to know me is to know that like I take depression, suicide really seriously because of because of um personal experiences with it and my own um uh dealings with mental mental health and suicide attempts but then also kind of it was kind of my great awakening when i had those struggles because i did not notice it 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 changed the way that i interacted with so many people and habits that i was observing and things that i was seeing because i had went through this line of suffering where i'm like oh i know that because i used to do that or i understand what that what that word really means, what this sentence really means, because I used to suffer with that too. Um, and it's give, it gave me a different muscle when it comes for empathy, because I just didn't have the wisdom, because I, I don't think I've, I've, I just didn't, I hadn't gone to that dark place to really um, be able to, 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 to name it. Um, so it's saying that usually at this point, it's very rare that something gets said that, shocks me or that makes me think differently but this article did it and it talks about the about the um about about one of the leading causes of uh of of suicide uh, completion in the black community in the black men's community and it's something i'm gonna give you the definition with it too it's called um slow suicide um which is defined as a prolonged period of self-abusive harmful behavior which may result in suicide completion. Um, I was kind of stunned, and it just lit me up when I read that because I was like, "Oh, that's the culture." If you can't hear me, I'm snapping. I'm 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 teaching with with my hands too. But uh, like that, it just was an aha where I was like, "That's the culture. That's what's going on. That is the thing that I, I couldn't necessarily name when I was listening to." certain rap music when I was seeing certain types of content and certain types of um, images uh, being created and they were toxic but we were okay with it but it was and it was confusing to me and I was like oh wow this is that's what we're celebrating or glorifying are these like kind of slow slow, um, suicide methods so to be even more clearer so suicide is when you know something is going to um, kill you or harm you, and you participate in it, um, either not caring about the results that might be suicide completion, or secretly, maybe not so secretly, but like maybe subconsciously is a better better word, hoping for those results. And I think about how many Percocet and alcohol, um, uh, how how many how many of this drug or how much of this alcohol or how fast can we go w- with this songs we have and how many movies we have of, the, of those things. And I always just kind of uh, wondered, like, w- when did this become the culture? Not a subculture, but, like, the culture. And it really hit me during COVID specifically because I was watching so many of my good-meaning liberal community-oriented friends say, like, try to get people to wear masks and try to scare people into wearing masks and 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 entice people and, and educate people into wearing masks and stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, well, you're not going to make a suicidal culture care about life just all, all of a sudden. 
that's just not how it's gonna go. And I was like, you're you're kind of talking to the people. You're you're telling you're threatening people with things that they're not scared of, and you're gonna hit a wall if you're saying you could die. And they're like, that's what I wanted, you know. That's what I wanted wanted to happen. And I'm so glad that this article focuses on black men because that is the culture in 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 young black male culture right now. If it's not conservatism, if it's not incel internet. BS, it is somewhere glorifying this type of soul suicide culture of taking a little bit of, taking this drug, doing this alcohol, participating in this dangerous activity. And the underlying thing is, if you die, it's okay, because we don't like it here anyway. And I thought this article was simple, but it offered something to me that just really just illuminated the way I saw people's habits around me, the culture. And then even how I saw my own habits, even during times when I was, um, when I was my most suicidal, the, the, the year, the two years before I would, that, that I, um, that I, that I attempted, I was taking the, doing the riskiest drugs at the riskiest times and the riskiest amounts. And I never even connected that behavior as, uh, me trying to, try, trying to do that. And I think that even, when you do that to like somebody, if you're if you're a patient of of if you're the therapist patient whatever, um, even saying that to a client can change the way they think about stuff because I know it changed me even though I'm I'm removed from the situation it still changed me and be like oh my goodness it didn't just pop out of nowhere where sometimes I think that it happened it was two months and then I was down and then I got better where I'm like no this was something that was gnawing at me for years and then it got more pointed but the more we kind of take this and it's the third leading the third leading cause in um in suicide in black men the more we take these signs seriously i think the more we'll kind of know what we're handling what, what we're really handling what we're really getting into so yeah i wanted to bring this to the podcast um i know it's not the most comfortable situ- situation to talk about or thing to talk about and then also the gaze that I wanted people to offer is not just like black men or them out there just to kind of review, Oh, are there ways that maybe in my own anxiety or clinical depression, are there things that like maybe I even do now that, you know, trend towards slow suicide and stuff like that. Even And because we don't talk about it, um, we wouldn't label it that way. And sometimes that harsh label helps you really address those problems when you can't just say, Oh, I'm just, I'm just having fun or we just outside, but I'm like, if you outside seven days a week and you, and you on these drugs, I'm like, you, you about to be outside with the Lord for real. If we don't, if we don't talk about these um, habits and we've seen it, I've had so many friends this year, this, this year, um, I've had four friends who OD'd, you know, and who, and who did stuff where when I really look back on it, I'm like, that was suicide. I mean, it says cocaine, but that was suicide. Or it says alcohol, but it was, that was suicide, you know? So, yeah, I wanted to bring that to you all and for us to talk about it and for us to be deep. Miles, thank you. So, first of all, thank you for sharing and being so vulnerable. Uh, and, um, we need to be talking about this. And I think what was so chilling to me about this is that thinking one of my cousins in particular, who I lost a couple of years ago, and when he passed, we all were like shocked because he's like always in a good mood and he always was so excited to see all of us and he always was the life of the party at family events. But when you really start to look at 
with substance abuse, with depression, like all all of the signs of slow suicide, like all of it that that is in this article, like he showed some version of that or some parts of those things were very present in his life. So I think even for, even as we're paying attention to our loved ones, it's so important just to know how to recognize, right? Instead of saying someone, you know, well, that person's on drugs, they're going to be all right. No, 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 no. Like we actually need to like be supportive and have more support structure around that loved loved one. Um, So I think that's what really, really just screamed at me about this, that what we're even, what we're on the lookout for is so far from these things in terms of uh, somebody being on the verge of or being on a path to take their own life. Uh, it's so interesting to me, Miles. First of all, thanks for bringing this. I thought it illuminated a bunch of interesting statistics about Black men and suicide, Caribbean men complete more than any other men. Like there were all of these interesting facts that I didn't know. But the naming of this slow suicide um, is really, really important. I think it's very interesting that you came at it from what's happening with young Black men. The people who I thought of immediately were my uncles, like my great uncles who, you know, were all sort of functional alcoholics and were literally like drinking themselves into the ground. Most of them died from cirrhosis or some um, sort of alcohol-related affliction or my uncles who, you know, were substance abusers and all of them, you know, it was just hard being a black man in America and you start drinking, you know, you start doing drugs to cope with, you know, all of the madness. And ultimately it turns into, I mean, you could see it in the way like there's no reason for you to drink that much alcohol or take this many drugs or do all of this. And to put a name to the fact that like it goes from I'm trying to cope and, you know, whatever, self-medicate to, I'm actually trying to get out of here. Maybe I'm not trying to get out of here, but I wouldn't mind getting out of here. I think I, for me, I could look across a number of men in my life and see sort of when that switch happened and, and what the like actual completion of that was. And so I think this is an opportunity for um, us to, as a community, to start talking about this slow suicide and to start calling people out and, and thinking about, I I want our mental health professionals to help us think about what the right interventions are. Um, Like, and, and I feel like, yeah, there, there's a moment to figure this thing out and not just let it happen anymore. Kai, I'm with you. The first thing that comes to mind is this, the power of language. There's something about the phrase that really clicked for me. I was like, Oh, this is giving language to this thing that I've seen my entire life. And, you know, my father, I'm going to call him the moment we get off the phone um, because he has spent his his entire life working in Narcotics Anonymous and, and uh, sponsoring people. And, and I cannot wait to share this language with him because I'm sure he sees it in his work, but just doesn't, you know, says it in 2,000 words instead of in two. So I thought this was, I thought the language was brilliant. I also thought that, What's interesting about it is that the the action of slow suicide takes away the stigma of suicide in the community because there's such a big stigma in black communities. So people like don't want their families to have to deal with it and da da da. And you know, all the research says that it's underreported in black communities because of the stigma. You know, they 
they died in their sleep. They did it. Like all these things that are not suicide. And, but when it's slow, when it is not a moment, it is, you know, two years of your liver eroding, then people actually get to sidestep the stigma. So that was interesting. The third is we can all name behaviors like, like you, Miles. The first thing that came to mind when I heard this was Percocet in, or, um, or what's the drink, Lord? Why am I old man now? The cough syrup, scissor, scissor yeah, lean, lean scissor. That's that's immediately what came to mind, right? And yes, yeah, so I thought that was fascinating. The fourth thing, and this is like, you know, I feel like there's always a police carceral, is when people think about fear and danger in the black community, they are not thinking that this is the third leading cause of death amongst black men. That's not what they are thinking drugs, murder. They are thinking all these wild things in community and suicide is not what people are rating as the top three. But really, if you are thinking about a healthy community, public health, public safety, you need this to be number 200 on the list and not number three. And it was another reminder to me about the I, the, the nuance that people bring to talking about suicide in public because of the research that says if you talk about it, more people commit more suicide. But the danger in not talking about it means that we just don't, we are not addressing it in mass. The third leading is crazy. I mean, that's that's big. And what, and what happens when you don't talk about it? So I left with a lot from this. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com slash store to shop this weekend which I'm realizing I'm saying on the pod so my friends I didn't reach out to are now going to text me and say why don't you call me when you're home um but I got the opportunity to go to a new development project initiative in Ward 7 called Sycamore and Oak so I grew up um in Ward 7 and 8 and it's really fascinating slash 
heartbreaking what's happening in the neighborhoods that I grew up in. So DC essentially looks completely different. And if you're familiar with DC, uh, you know that it's been gentrified to the nines. I think I wrote a paper about gentrification in law school in 2007. And at that point, a quarter million people had been displaced. So I can only imagine what that number looks like now. Um, but housing projects like Berry Farms and others have been they're completely gone. Um, and so what's now happened, I guess, is there's, there's a movement around protecting some of what DC has left of Black culture. Um, and so this development, it's beautiful. It's made all out of pine. It's huge. And part of it, it is to galvanize entrepreneurship in Ward 7. And so there are a number of Black businesses there that are all amazing. Also, everybody needs to go to this place. Like, please visit these Black businesses. It's, it's on St. Elizabeth's campus, which is also a whole nother mind for, for me that things are on this campus and the history of St. Elizabeth's, so that it was um, a psychiatric hospital for, for many, many years but completely unsafe and completely treacherous to Black people. Um, and when D.C. closed St. Elizabeth's, they just closed the door and let everybody out. Um, but anyhow, so this, this development is, is, is in the heart of the heart of Ward, the heart of Ward 8. And uh, there are boutiques like Museum D.C. And if you don't know about Museum D.C., I don't know where you've been, but um, it's a, it's a clothing line. People would describe it as urban wear clothing line, but it's amazing. And one of their locations is there. Um, there's also, um, this woman, Amanda Stevenson, she's the owner of Fresh Food Factory Market. So she's bringing, you know, the 48 is the desert, uh, a food desert. So she's bringing high quality groceries and ingredients, etc. Um, you know, this, the whole, the village is, uh, supposed to create about a hundred jobs over in Ward 8, and it's also um, going to really work in collaboration with, Dish- with uh, D.C.'s Department of Employment Services. The other interesting thing is that they're also going to use this space to try to bring more health um, healthcare, health clinics, health access to, pe- to folks in Ward 8. So that'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Um, but the, the business is there. Southside Creative is another business that, that's owned by Kiana Jones. Um, and all, it's like art and clothes and all representing the, the African diaspora and her shop, just beautiful shop. Um, but it goes on and on. So there's incredible businesses there. The space is just, it's, it's amazing to be honest. Um, and it's right next door. Again, if you're familiar with DC to where the Washington is like, um, so you, you sort of can't miss it if you're on that St. East campus, but I just wanted to bring this to the pod because I'm just sort of going through it. <laughs> Uh, with what's happening in DC and how how to hold that in my heart and how to action that in terms of how I can do what I can do to preserve um, beautiful city, Chocolate City, used to be known as Chocolate City um, that I grew up in, and it was interesting because when I was at the when I was at this space, I was having a conversation with some folks, some folks that grew up um, in, in Ward Seven and Eight as well. Um, and they were like, it's just nice to have something in the Black part of D.C. And I was like, wait, now D.C. has a Black part. The whole thing be Black. And I was like, that is wild. It's absolutely wild. And the wilder thing about it is this gentrification and this development, it's all happened under Black mayors. 
whether it's Mary Bowser, whether it's Vincent Gray, um, uh, Adrian Finty, Lord have mercy. And the person who really held us down for years, and people can say what they want, and may he rest in peace, is Mary Berry, because that is still my mayor for life. Um, and I believe Southeast would look a completely different place um, if he if the takedown hadn't happened. But, you know, it's just, it's interesting what's happening in D.C. Um, and these types of investments, um, after all the gentrification is said and done, then it's like, oh, now we want to preserve a little bit of D.C. And I'm like, okay, I, I guess we'll figure out how to be supportive to that. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to bring it to the pod because it's really personal to me what's happening in D.C. And I guess I'm just grappling with um, now living in New York, how do I still um, figure out how to be as supportive to my city as possible? So thanks for bringing us to the pod, Diara. Um, I'm excited to go over and see the development and support Black businesses. And I think for people who aren't from D.C. or aren't familiar with D.C., the thing to know is D.C. is divided into eight wards and four quadrants. And most of you have only been to the Northwest quadrant of D.C. You've never been to Northeast or Southeast or Southwest. And all of the monuments are in Northwest. All of the universities are in Northwest. And so you literally know a quarter of the city. And the rest of the city um, is very different than than, than Northwest. Um, in fact, Wards 7 and 8 are the blackest parts of the city, not always have been, but have been for the last 50 or 60 years. Um, it's where the most children are. It's where the most poverty is. And it has been the place of the most neglect. There's not a sit-down restaurant anywhere in um, in Ward 7 and 8 except for Denny's, right? And so this has been, um, there had been um, targeted neglect for that part of the city. And now there, it's where the cities, I mean, you called it a psychiatric hospital. Like people think of cities as an insane asylum and all that that conjures up, right? And so to have now this new stuff happening in a neighborhood and a place that was so neglected is really, really important. Um, I think um, what I would say about this is it's cool to have the business incubators and all of that stuff. And like people need jobs. So it's going to be important for those hundred jobs to go to people in that community, right? Because oftentimes what gentrification looks like is putting pretty things in rough neighborhoods and then bringing other people in to take care of those pretty things. And I think we as a community have to be vigilant, not be, I'm no shade to the business people or anybody who has helped make this project together, but I think we as a community have to be vigilant about holding people accountable for not just giving us shiny, pretty things, but helping us get the things that actually change people's lives and change people's circumstances. So my news was something that I was, you know, I brought it because I was both surprised by it, And then I was like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. And then I was like, oh, well, the my correction was even weirder. So there was a story about how 27 kids have been reported missing in May of uh, this year in Cleveland and how it was a big increase. Um, you know, the police department is saying actually that they received 33 reports of missing kids for all of May, which is a little broader than the New York Post. The New York Post like, and Fox and some other places have posted this story about um, this rash of missing kids in Cleveland. 
and a spike of missing kids happening in Cleveland. And then I have a friend who I follow on Instagram, who I've known, who I actually knew from Twitter. She also posted something about Black kids going missing in Cleveland. She's from Cleveland. She posted this plea from a mom being like, please help find my son. So I was like, okay, I hadn't heard anything about the missing kids in Cleveland. And then the police department, there's an article in Axios, and the headline is Cleveland Police Address Misinformation on Missing Kids. So I'm like, whew. This is another example of the internet running away with the story and da da da. So then I look at it, and their correction is not that that many kids were not missing, but that there's just not a crisis. And I was like, well, that's not, that wasn't the correction I was looking for. So the police department is like, you know, there are always a lot of missing kids. And uh, yes, that it's a 20% increase from last year, but out of the 1,072 kids who have been reported missing, um, 1,020 of those kids have been returned home. That's the police department's claim. So they are not contesting that there's a spike in kids missing, that there are a lot of kids who were missing in May, but they're like, you know, some kids run away and it just happens. Remember, those kids don't get Amber Alerts. Um, and they are sort of saying, well, we found most of them. And I was just floored by this because the story of a rash of missing kids is a problem. I mean, even if you find the kids later, the idea of this many kids being missing is actually in and of itself a problem, especially when you think, I mean, they're kids. I don't even know, especially when you think, whatever, whether they're running away, the police department's like, you know, we don't know anything about trafficking. But I, when I read misinformation, I was like, oh, they, the kids weren't missing. That's what I thought the story was going to be. I was like, no, no, the kids are missing. There actually is a spike in kids missing. And for the police department to be like, hey, you know, this just always happens was not a comforting response and was certainly not the response that I was expecting. So I wanted to bring it here because this is something from a number perspective that I don't deal with in my work. And I don't see much information about missing kids until there's like a tragedy that happens. But I hadn't even, this made me want to look at spikes across the country. What is happening to kids? Like, where are they going, you know, and how do we deal with that? So I thought I'd bring it here. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I, I definitely understand both, both takes. I think the thing, the, the thing about when Black children go missing or when, um, just marginalized children in any community that, like go missing. It's always a hint that there's like a person who's a predator on the on the loose. So like the twenty percent would have been alarming to me. That's what's kind of wild to me. Where I'm like, sure, a lot of kids are going missing, and you're finding most of them. But still, from last year, there's a twenty percent spike, which might mean that there's actually somebody who's, you know, a, an, an individual who's making this happen. I don't know if that's just like my true crime brain or or what but that that would just be where my mind mind goes and it's just wild that uh, uh, for me because i grew up in grew up in atlanta this obviously reminds me of the story that happened in the early 90s with atlanta where that man was like killing all the black children and because because of similar reasons because children go missing all the time it wasn't connected that this might be one individual and I just think that we should always be alarmed when spikes like that happen in in one place because our ignorance to it can can obviously cost lives. I thought the exact same thing, Miles. I remember being in elementary school and wearing little green ribbons every day for 
the days that kids were missing during the Atlanta child murders and people literally did not pay attention because they were missing black kids. And this feels very similar to that. Like, and I, like, I want the community to be outraged. I want, I want us to have done everything that we, you know, could do to realize that it's not one person, that it is just a bunch of runaways, but I don't feel like that's the case right now. And kids are in danger and we need to do something about that. You always rather overreact, right? If we spent seven, seven, whatever million dollars down the uh, down the down the the sea exactly drain, Miles, <laughs> like, exactly Miles, over, <laughs> over a million dollars. You know, what did y'all think about the misinformation? I, when I saw misinformation, I was like, oh, they must say the kids got found, and I was like, oh no, it's just. And I guess you would know about this more than I would, Deray. But it just seems like police have gotten even more even on a local level, like, have gotten even more, like, savvy on on internet narratives because it felt so PR'd and it felt so, it felt so savvy. Yeah, spin, pure spin, yeah, pure spin. It felt so savvy in the fact that it was, um, the fact that it was made into an article and that means that the police have some type of relationship with some, with, with, with a media outlet, you know what I mean? And, and the, it just felt very, it felt, yeah, just, already, which is not how you want police to sound. <laughs> you know, I think it's just building on what Kaya said in terms of just activating the community around it. It's, it this does seem like something that the administration should pick up or something that the Black community as a collective should be pushing the administration to address. Just like we're, you know, working to address maternal health care for Black women. I think this missing children thing is a crisis. And, and, and should be getting national attention and federal funding, resources. Like, I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't, what I wouldn't want to do, Miles, to your point, is leave it to local governments, particularly in communities where local governments have oppressed, suppressed those Black communities for years, for years. And in Cleveland, Lord have mercy. I mean, Diara, what you say makes me think of the idea that, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, like kids are not just missing from families. Kids are missing from schools in droves. New York City lost 300,000 kids during the pandemic. They literally don't know where these kids are. We did this article and it seems like, and, and this has tremendous implications for the funding of education across the country. Los Angeles can't find 40% of its kids, all of these staggering numbers. And so why isn't there a federal task force that is trying to figure out where are the children? Because they didn't all get on a rocket and go to Mars looking for a new experience, right? They are here somewhere and we got to find these kids. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Podsy of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultrie and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson. From the creator podcast such as Root of Evil, Relative Unknown, and the Peabody-nominated Gangster Capitalism comes The Set, the never-before-told story of the biggest police corruption scandal in New York City history and the investigation that uncovered it all. It was the height of the crack era and the most violent time in New York City's history. But instead of protecting New Yorkers from drug dealers, some police officers became them. 
When a commission formed to investigate police misconduct, it discovered Harlem's 30th precinct had been overrun with corruption. But even worse, the NYPD had been turning a blind eye. In the set, we hear never-before-told stories shared directly by the dirty cops who were convicted, the undercover internal affairs officer who blew the whistle, and the investigators, prosecutors, and police commissioner who exposed the truth about what happened when the world's largest police department failed to police itself. The set, an Odyssey Originals documentary podcast, is available now on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your shows.